powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, I had the pleasure of being joined by Elizabeth Nupp, Ford Foundation's China Country Director. We talk about her jump into the private sector without any prior experience, her role at the Hopkins Nanjing Center, and navigating cultural divides after the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. We also dive into the grants that are currently being made by the Ford Foundation and the relationship with wealth and philanthropy in China. Let's take a listen. Hi, Elizabeth. It's so great to have you on Toffer Tashe. Elizabeth is the country director for China for the Ford Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And so I would actually really like to start with you telling listeners a little bit more about yourself and what keeps you busy recently. So I think probably when I define myself, I think of not only am I the director of the Ford Foundation office in China, but I've lived in China pretty consistently since 1998, doing a bunch of different types of work over that period of time. And so I spend a lot of time trying to think about what's the best way to be effective uh, in getting the work of the Ford Foundation done in China, and how to communicate that back out to colleagues that are in other parts of the world, including the United States. Great. And I think what I would really like to do is actually start from the beginning. And I know that you studied political science at Middlebury, but what initially piqued your interest in China? That's a really great question. I went to Middlebury College to study language and, in fact, to study French. I had studied French since I had been in primary school. And Middlebury, your listeners may know, is well-known both as an undergraduate college uh, in teaching language and also has a really well-known summer school program. So I went there to study French. And I think like a lot of young people, once you get out of your normal environment you grew up in and you go someplace with a lot of new ideas and new people, I suddenly found French much less interesting than I had found it when I was in high school. And I really wanted to study a language that was um, unusual, that was challenging, that was unique. And it just so happened that Middlebury had started teaching Chinese about three years before I had gotten there. So it was also kind of a new hot, sexy language also at Middlebury. So I picked it up. At Middlebury, did you have a chance to travel to greater China to further enhance your language studies? And what was that like the first time really getting to to be in China? So as an undergrad in the late 70s uh, and the early 1980s, we were really encouraged to do our study abroad in Taiwan uh, which I did in those days. So that would have been 1981. I spent uh, six months living and studying in Taiwan. In those days, some people were coming to the PRC, but most students were encouraged, at least at Middlebury, we were encouraged to go to Taiwan, primarily because it was thought that we would have a much, much more opportunity to engage broadly in Chinese society in Taiwan than one would have been able to do in 1981 in the PRC. And that's probably true. So I, I was in Taiwan 
Mm. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever really lived outside the United States. And it was, I don't know, it was, un, it was transformational. It was amazing. It was hard. It was sometimes lonely, but I, I think it was really, uh, it really solidified for me the language learning. It made the language come alive and it solidified for me a real interest in Chinese culture more broadly and sort of the history and politics, et cetera, of Taiwan, of the PRC. So it really made made my book learning come alive. You graduated from Middlebury and with probably lots of options being able to speak Chinese, how do you think about what would be the next step for you after that? At that period of time, so again, we're now talking about the early 1980s. So 1979 was when the U.S. and China reestablished their diplomatic relations. So it hadn't been that many years had gone by. So it didn't occur to me to actually think about a career living in the People's Republic of China. Rather, I thought, oh, well, I guess I can be a teacher and I can go to graduate school and get a PhD and teach about China. That was kind of the only kind of imagination that I had about what one could do. So I took a few years off, as many do, and then went to graduate school with the full intention of staying there and completing a PhD and becoming a professor of Chinese history or something like that. And did you study the Chinese education system while you were there? So I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan in a master's degree program. And so that was a broad China studies program that had many different disciplines, all focusing on China, including language. And my thesis, my master's thesis was on the Chinese education system. And I was really lucky when I was at the University of Michigan at that time, it was really, and I think it still is, but at the time really had some of the biggest names in, in China studies, including Professor Don Monroe, who was a philosophy professor, who was my thesis advisor, looking at the Maoist education model and the theories around humans' capacity for transformation through education, but really looking at this entirely from the outside. So reading secondary sources. I mean, I didn't go to China to study this, but it was all at quite a distance studying the topic. It was fascinating, but it was also maybe not a completely accurate understanding, as one finds out when one finally lives in a country. What prompted you to to want to live in China? What about, was it about the fact that you felt that the education and the study and the learning wasn't touching deeply and intimately enough with the topics that you were trying to engage with? The whole idea of becoming a, a PhD in Chinese history lost its luster after I'd been in graduate school for a couple of years um, and realized that the average length of time to get a PhD in Chinese history at the University of Michigan at that time was nine years. And I suddenly realized that I for just... Wow. My my personality wasn't wasn't really suited to nine years of academic endeavor, and then of course the rest of academic endeavor after you get a PhD. And I realized that I was actually much more of a person happier in a in a more hands on world. So I left with a master's degree, and then I went to work for the National Committee on U.S. China Relations, an NGO based in 
the United States, looking at engagement with China uh, and delegation exchanges and things like that. So I traveled back and forth to China many, many times for about 10 years, but I never lived there. In the beginning, I never really thought about that until after about halfway through uh, my 10 years at the National Committee, I thought, you know, I really have never lived in the PRC. And now a lot of people live in the PRC. And now you can actually get a decent cup of coffee. So maybe now I can figure out a way to live there and just sort of understand China from not just from a drop by visit, a delegation visit two, three weeks at a time, but to really live there and really understand the country from that perspective. I then tried to lobby the National Committee to open an office in China so that I could run it, uh, trying all kinds of ways. And that never happened. So eventually I left the committee and went to work for Johns Hopkins University at the Hopkins Nanjing Center for Chinese and American Studies, moved to China in 1998, and still here. <laughs> so I never left. I actually want to talk a little bit more about the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I would think most listeners are fairly familiar with what I would say is an institution, U.S.-China Relations. What type of work were you doing there? What was most striking to you about the delegations that you brought to China, both from the U.S. perspective and the Chinese perspective? And I'm very curious about the, I know that uh, NUSCA was started in the 1960s, but what was, what was unique about the time there in the 1980s and 90s, even though a lot of the, the activities I think that NUSCA does now are enduring and have, you know, there have been delegations over the years of different thought leaders, uh, government leaders, business leaders going to China. So I was there for 10 years. So I did a lot of different types of jobs, right? I started out at sort of entry level and worked my way up. Um, so I, I, I worked on, you know, delegations of scholars that were already in the United States. And we had study tours around the United States to help them understand the history and culture and uh, society of the United States. And I also traveled to the United States with Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy or and or with retired uh, four-star generals and hosted various kinds of education and other sorts of delegations from China to the United States. So a wide, wide range of things related to sort of U.S.-China engagement. I would say a couple things. So I was at the National Committee in 1989, and that was a pretty, you know, the Tiananmen Square incident. And that was a pretty pivotal kind of moment for the National Committee. And sort of what did we think about and how did we how did we deal with that? I think was a pretty important formative part of my time there. And what we did was we suspended our delegation activities and shifted our resources to really convening people in the United States to really talk about and understand not only what happened, but more importantly, what was the pathway forward. And so for about a year, didn't do any direct exchanges with China. But then in early 1991, I went on the first delegation after Tiananmen of the National Committee to China and also hosted the first education ministry delegation coming to the United States post-1989. And so those were some pretty interesting times. Um, and then towards the mid-1990s, when Chinese civil society 
sort of grassroots civil society really started to emerge uh, around the time of the Women's Conference. The National Committee was deeply interested in and involved in thinking about the emergence of civil society in China and, and how to engage with that. And our entry point was around environmental protection. So really in the mid-1990s, it was women's rights and environmental protection were the earliest areas in which civil society started to emerge. Uh, And so I did a lot at that point, uh, looking at the growth of civil society and particularly from the point of view of environmental NGOs. And that was really exciting. I mean, just really so interesting to see those types of organizations emerging and trying to understand, you know, were they like NGOs in the United States? Did it matter? What was different about them? How effective were they? How could we support them to just become what it was that they were themselves hoping to become? Uh, so that was a really exciting time. And so those, I think, are two two things that I remember, although there's many things over a 10-year period that are worth thinking about. Well, I am quite curious, what was the NGO landscape like at that time? As you mentioned, we have a preconceived conception from our, our Western understanding of what an NGO is. Was it the same at the time? So I think at the time, um, there were what we call government-organized NGOs or gongos, were the one form of um, civil society, but quite aligned to the government and sometimes connected to the government. Um, but what was emerging were uh, non-governmental, non-Gongo NGOs. And a lot of them were led by, and still are in fact, led by pretty charismatic, very passionate individuals who were very passionate about the topic that they were developing an organization around. And so really one model, and I think it's one that continues till today, and I think it's actually a bit of a weakness, is this charismatic leader-driven NGO. Because what's happened in my observation over the last 25 years or so is that those leaders, they've had a hard time finding successors for lots of reasons. So while there was a lot of vibrancy and passion in those leaders, then how do you take the organization to the next level, I think is a big challenge that these NGOs are facing now. Um, And at the time, I think the Chinese grassroots NGO civil society were looking outside of China for models and lessons and information and capacity building because there wasn't any, there weren't any models inside China. Uh, So they were looking outside. And at the same time, people in the West were so enthusiastic and enamored of the possibility of this independent civil society growing up in China that you know, foundations, funders, NGOs like the National Committee were very eager to engage and to share best practice, et cetera. And I think ultimately there are questions to be raised about how, quote, Western those civil society organizations were and how authentically Chinese they were. Um, and I'll just say one more thing about this is that I do think what's different Um, is really about how organizations in China understand their, quote, theory of change. How do they envision that change happens in a society? Um, And it's a form of advocacy in China that is not necessarily the same way we advocate 
in the West. It's more of a symbiotic kind of relationship with the government where you are, where the NGOs are, they're separate from the government, but they're close to the government and they're trying to shape government policy through an engagement process as opposed to a, a confrontation process. Um, and I think that's one thing that we in the West need to try to understand when we look at Chinese civil society, that it has its own theory of change that's works in this particular system. And that doesn't mean because it doesn't look like our theory of change in our society that it's somehow uh, less than. Uh, so that's something that I've observed over a pretty long period of time of looking at this. I just want to dig a little bit more into this idea of theory for change. And what would you say are the metrics for success for NGOs in China in line with this different way of looking at change? Their goals are similar, right? That many work on whether it's an environmental issue or work with a beneficiary group such as disabled people or women who are affected by domestic violence or you name it, the same kinds of issues and topics and beneficiary groups that NGOs the world over seek to support. And so I think those things are similar. And so what outcomes they're looking for are also going to be better outcomes for those particular groups of people. So you want better protection for women who are are suffering from domestic violence and you want more access to education and opportunity, et cetera, for disabled people. And so in a way, they're talking about the rights of those people without explicitly calling out that they take a, a rights framework in how they talk about their work. But really, at the end of the day, they're looking at opportunity and access and voice and power for people who are more vulnerable populations. So I think their metrics for success are, are the same. It's just that how does success happen? Like, how do you get the government or society to recognize that disabled people should be given the exact same rights as non-disabled people. How do you get people to realize that? And how do you get governments to respond to that? You might not have a protest. You might not have a big parade. There's there, there some tactics that you might not use. You might use different tactics, but the goal would still be the same. From an outsider perspective, looking in, you can understand that the relationship with government is different. Um, as most listeners know, but understanding it within this unique context of how NGOs approach their work and how they think about this theory of change, it's very interesting. Now, I know that you also mentioned the Hopkins Nanjing Center. It seems like you went from one critically acclaimed institution that surrounds China to another, um, another incredible educational institution that still exists in Nanjing, actually had the chance to visit myself um, a couple years ago. And what were you doing at the time there? And how did you see the institution grow throughout the years that you were there? So I was the American co-director. So there was a Chinese co-director and an American co-director. So I represented Johns Hopkins University in its uh, joint project with Nanda. And then also was basically the dean of students for the American 
selected students. They weren't all Americans, but the ones that were selected by Johns Hopkins, there were about 50, 40 or 50 each year during my time. I was also the de facto dean of faculty of a set of faculty also hired by Johns Hopkins to teach the Chinese side students, and then ran together with my Chinese colleagues the sort of operations of the of the center. So it was a very, very collaborative relationship between the two universities, which also meant that nobody could boss anybody around and nobody could make their own decision by themselves, which, um, you know, sometimes was frustrating, but most of the time ended up being quite positive. So I spent a lot of time with students. I spent a lot of time with faculty. And I spent a lot of time trying to think about how to strengthen and deepen the engagement between the Chinese and the non and the what we called international students, right? So they they studied separately because they each studied in their target language and they lived in pairs, international and Chinese student pairs in the dormitory. So what else could we do to create moments, platforms, opportunities? activities that would engage the students across the culture, not only by, you know, playing ping pong and games like that, but also intellectually and just really bring them together. Because the point of the center is to, frankly, make you get uncomfortable, frankly, because you have to really get to know the other person in a way that's deeper than we might normally in our day-to-day life. And that's part of what the center is trying to do. So I tried to work with my colleagues to think of, you know, innovative kinds of ways to have extracurricular activities that were intellectual and fun. And then we also try, we, we set up, while I was there, we set up a summer immersion language program and we set up a, a sort of a research Institute for International Relations, where we were seeking to bring Chinese and non-Chinese scholars to be in residence at the center to carry out the research and also contribute to the sort of academic community. Uh, so a couple of things like that that we experimented with while I was there. Really incredible gains over the time that you were there. And you probably get asked about this a lot, but you have lived through and interacted with some tumultuous times in U.S. and China relations. I am really curious, though, in a leadership position at the Hopkins Nanjing Center, how did you react to the NATO accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade? As I can imagine, the way you you talk about the student interaction is that, you know, it, it sometimes is a little bit uncomfortable and there are some cultural differences, and that's really the power of the program. But in a time of tension, how do you navigate that? It was really hard. <laughs> to be really honest. I mean, I would say this, most of the students were with me coming back from a field trip and we heard about this news while we were kind of on the bus just outside of Nanjing. So by the time we got to the center, the news was everywhere about what had happened. And really, that news was so instantly polarizing that it's kind of hard to imagine. Just because there was, number one, it was very dramatic and traumatic for Chinese people because Chinese citizens had been killed. And the question of whether this was an accident or something done on purpose was just, you know, really your point of view on that 
was driven entirely from sort of whether you were Chinese or you weren't Chinese. And there was no real good information. So there was just, so the, so the whole center polarized immediately and in a pretty dramatic and challenging way, right? So kids put posters up saying bad things about each other, not about themselves personally, but about Americans this and Chinese that. And so for a couple of days, it was really very, very difficult. And my co-director, Chinese co-director and I, at about day two, thought, okay, we'll bring all the students together in the auditorium and we'll talk about how important it is to, you know, get past this and that's going to solve all the problems. So we brought them all in the auditorium and we, we made our speeches and they fell flat. I mean, completely, completely flat. You can't force people to like get over whatever their sort of emotional and very heartfelt points of view are at the time. So that was a complete failure on our part. We tried, but nothing, nothing, that just didn't work. And so what ultimately happened was the students themselves, um, after I think maybe two or three, maybe four days, some, a student put up a sign on the you know, bulletin board and said, okay, everybody meet in, you know, classroom number 302. You know what this is all about. And all the students went almost. And my co-director and I kind of sat on the edge and they ran the whole meeting and they, they spoke emotionally and in a heartfelt way about how it felt to be a Chinese person right now, how it felt to be an American person right now, how it felt to look across the room at someone you'd been friends with for eight months and then suddenly not be able to talk to them. People cried. I mean, it was really an incredibly healing moment that just demonstrated the power of the Hopkins Nudging Center. I think if those people hadn't spent the previous eight months living and working and studying and debating things together, I'm pretty sure they people would have just gone their separate ways and would never have kind of found any healing around that process. So that was really completely driven by the students. And when the administration tried to do something to make it happen, it, it was a failure. So that is a testament, I think, to that particular institution. So it ends up being a, a pretty good story in the end, although for several days it was it was difficult. And thinking about being a leader, I was not only, you know, so I'm also the in loco parentis for all of the kids that are recruited by Johns Hopkins. And there were some who were concerned for their safety and wanted to be evacuated and others who were wishing they could just go out and ride their motorcycle around town and see what was going on. So how do you, young adults, how do you protect them? And how, you know, what's the role that a person in my position would have around the safety of those students um, and their own agency? So that was something that I had to navigate and also had to navigate, you know, Nanda, we were in China, there were protests around our center. We looked like an embassy. So, you know, students would come to our gate and sort of ask me to say something to Bill Clinton or whatever, you know, they, they, so there was a lot of commotion and the Nanjing University wanted to have some security guys stay inside the center in order to protect us from whatever might happen on the streets. And this was probably one of the hardest things that I had to kind of think about because I was trying to think about, okay, safety, that's really important. Chinese security people inside the center 
do I think that's a good idea? Do I think that's a breach of sort of an American university values or norms and how to sort of balance that all out? And in the end, I agreed to have it happen. I don't, I'm pretty sure I actually didn't have a choice in the matter. I, I think they may have asked me out of courtesy. Um, and in the end, it was fine. They stayed one night and they left. But it was really a time of really having to make a lot of decisions on the fly with not a lot of information. And in a country where I hadn't lived for very long and my kind of antenna for just kind of feeling the what was really going on was was weak. I wasn't in my own society. I wasn't in my own culture. I wasn't able to use all of my spidey senses to kind of know what was going on as well as I would have been able to in a different, in my own culture, my own country. Uh, but, you know, we made it through, but, <laughs> but it was definitely an interesting several days. Wow. That's really fascinating. I think it speaks a lot to to students and their ability to to come together and also to your profound leadership. I, you probably, when you took the job, didn't think you'd be placed in that sort of situation. I definitely did not. No, I definitely right? did not. And, you know, these were your questions beyond how to set up an educational institution and how to keep that educational institution functioning really was a time that put you uh, in a difficult situation, but it does seem like it resolved in the way that the program was con- able to continue move forward. I bet that those students from that year are even closer. I think so. It certainly is something that people remember. It was, it was a, memorable, a memorable time. What made you want to leave an academic institution? So I had signed a three-year contract and the time came for that to be finished. Part of me felt like I had now lived in China and I could go back to the United States That on one level. I also, it's a kind of an exhausting job, right? So I live together with the students and the faculty in the dormitory. It's the kind of thing where you walk out your door and you're kind of on no matter what you do. Um, and the way I did it, and it's, this is maybe not the way everybody would do it, but I, I engaged deeply. Uh, and so I, I just, I got a little bit tired, right? It's tiring. Uh, and I was thinking about going back to the United States. So I chose to not continue at the Hopkins Nanjing Center and to start to look for a job in the U S as you do, I talked to all kinds of people that I knew in the U.S. to sort of see if there were any opportunities. And one of those people happened to be Virginia Kamsky, who was on the board of both the National Committee and on the advisory board of the Hopkins Nanjing Center at the time, just to ask her if she knew of any opportunities in the U.S. And she said, well, you know, what you really should do is you should move to Beijing and you should run my office of my consulting company in Beijing. And I actually laughed and I said, you know, I you, I hope you remember who you're talking to. I've only ever worked in NGOs and in academic institutions. I've never run a business ever in my life. And I don't know anything about it. So make sure you're actually talking to who you think you're talking to. And she said to me, and I remember this, she said, there's, you can learn. Th- these are things you can learn. And I think you have the skills 
other kinds of skills and you can learn the things that you don't know about business. And so I actually struggled for a while uh, to decide whether or not to take that job because I I think having come out of academia and out of the not-for-profit sector, I sort of had a, a bias about business as being somehow bad or something. Uh, and so I wasn't so sure I wanted to do it. And I think I was probably a little nervous because I didn't really know anything about it. But in the end, I sort of said to myself, you know, no one in the U.S. would give you this kind of an opportunity to run, basically run a business with no experience. Uh, so you have to try this because somebody's actually giving you this incredible opportunity to do something that 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 is highly unlikely given your background. And so you really need to do it. And I made a deal with myself that I would do it for six months. And if I really didn't like it, I could quit, right? Nobody said that you had to do something for your whole life. So I went for it. So I moved to Beijing and did this job and I ended up staying for six or seven years. So that was a pretty big decision. And I just decided to just go for it because somebody was really, really generously giving me an amazing opportunity to try something I never would have otherwise thought about doing. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications? Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one attention, from college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications. Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street B R A T L E Street dot com helping you get where you want to go. What did you underestimate about running a business? So it seems like you overestimated a few things, considering that you stayed more than six months. But what did you underestimate? I think I underestimated how much every job you have, no matter whether it's not-for-profit or academic or for-profit, is really mostly about people. And so... So, and so Ginny was right. You can learn some of the skills, but 80% of all of this kind of running a, an office, a business, a school is really about how do you engage with people and how do you motivate people and how do you inspire people? And it's really about people. So I think I underestimated the degree of similarity across all different types of institutions when it comes to the kind of the people element, at least for me, the way I've approached the jobs that I do. So that's one thing. I guess that would probably be the the main kind of huge takeaway that I had. And then I think the way consulting business, you know, there's different types of businesses, right? So we were running a consulting company, which was really about research and really about gathering information, synthesizing it, analyzing it and feeling confident enough to make a few assertions about something based on fairly limited or highly triangulated pieces of knowledge and information. And I I found that some people were really comfortable doing that. Other people were less comfortable doing that. So that was the nature of, of this type of consulting. So that was very 
interesting to me and really suited my curiosity prone kind of personality because we had clients across a wide range of industry sectors. So I could do a little of this and a little of that. And so that was highly satisfying for a while and then increasingly unsatisfying because in the end, you really are a jack of all trades and a master of none. And you're also, as a consultant, you're kind of always on the outside. You do a lot of research, you have some ideas, you share them with the client, and you actually never often don't know how they use that information and what decisions they make and how they move forward once they have sort of your input. And so I was really ultimately more interested in being on the inside of an organization and part of the decision-making process and owning the decisions and then implementing them. I do want to jump forward a little bit to your work now at the Ford Foundation. You started in 2013 and you oversee, I think, more than $16 million in grant-making for China. What are the key focus areas for you right now with the Ford Foundation? So foundations change their mind a lot about what they work on. So we have a new strategy that's different different than the one we had in 2013 that has three primary components. One is looking through the lens of Chinese development finance, how Chinese development finance affects communities and particularly inequality in communities on the ground in the countries where that finance is going. Uh, So it's both looking at the standards, transparency, ESG, sort of policy around regulating banks and funds, et cetera, that are part of the development financing process inside China and research around that um, inside China. And then also looking at the capacity of communities uh, NGOs, governments, et cetera, on the ground in some of the recipient countries to better be able to build their capacity and knowledge so that they can better engage with China. So the idea, the goal is that the outcomes on the ground in the recipient countries are better for people. And so we think that China actually at this moment in its development finance and Belt and Road aspirations is open to sort of trying to find ways to improve outcomes on the ground. So that's one part. Another part is more domestic focused and it's looking at how to strengthen the ecosystem around philanthropy and impact investing inside China. And so these are two methods that tend to mobilize private capital for public good. So either through foundations or high net worth individuals or philanthropists, how are they thinking about mobilizing their money for public good? And then impact investing is a way of looking at investment that has both a social return and a financial return. And the Ford Foundation, as a very large with long history philanthropy in the world has, we think, something to bring to the table. And Ford also is a pretty big actor in what we call mission-related investing, which means using our own endowment funds to invest uh, for impact. And so we have some experience that we think is uh, shareable. So thinking about how do we work with Chinese partners to strengthen those two sectors inside China. And then finally, U.S.-China relations, which is something that Ford has been investing in since the 1960s and the 1970s, in fact, was an early 
an early funder of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations in the 1960s, all the way until today. So we do fund research, dialogue, exchange. I'm pretty interested now in trying to find those people who are thinking creatively and in a kind of breakthrough ways about a future framework for U.S.-China relations uh, as we're in, I think, a period now of some pretty big transition in the relationship. So who are the people who are thinking in really innovative and creative ways about what the future might look like? Those would be the people I would like to talk to. And are you able to talk about any initiatives or grants that you're really excited about at the moment? Yeah, there's a couple. So I've made a couple grants to some institutions in the U.S. to look at. One is to, and I I, I don't think I want to say the names because I probably need to ask them if I can use their name, but one of the grants is to a think tank in the U.S. to look across all of their sort of departments and areas of study, whether it's a geographic or a thematic area, and ask each department to write a short paper and think about how does China affect what it is you're trying to do, right? So the idea here is to start a have a different paradigm of thinking about China, not as a geographic silo in any institution as it is in many, but more as a horizontal sort of factor that may have an impact on whatever it is you're trying to do. So if your goal, if if what you're trying to think about is global internet governance, China is a really, you've got to think about China, right? Or if you're thinking about the future of work and AI, you have to think about demographics in China. You have to think about Chinese uptake of AI. You have to think about supply chain shifting because of the trade war, right? So even if you don't, if you're not a China person, you have to understand the impact that China's presence in the world now has on everything that you're doing. So when all of that sort of analysis is done to hopefully demonstrate that we all need to start to think about China in a different kind of paradigm. So I think that's pretty exciting. Um, another grant to another think tank in the U.S. related to China relations is looking at sort of China's role in global governance sort of framing and creating and influencing and shaping global governance norms and particularly bringing in a global south perspective so being sure that the grant includes voices from Africa from Latin America and from Southeast Asia because my other thesis is that really US China relations has to be sort of multilateralized we have to realize that the U.S. and China are in a world where there's other actors, and those are significant actors in their own right. And and so this is not just a discussion between China and the U.S. We have to be having a discussion that includes the other voices, particularly from the global south. So those are two um, U.S.-China-related ones that uh, I'm pretty excited about. And then finally, because we're now moving ourselves from having a China-specific geographically bound strategy to one where we're looking at China's impact in other parts of the world, we are also starting to work with our other offices. So in particular, our office of South Africa, we're doing a couple different grants with them and also our office in that's based in Bogota, looking at just helping 
early stage trying to explore what civil society and NGOs in those regions know and don't know about China and need to know and how can we start to create a knowledge base uh, in, in, in other countries to help their communities, their civil societies, their governments just engage with China from a position of knowledge as opposed to a position of just really not understanding what is Chinese finance, what's a state-owned enterprise. There's a real dearth of, of knowledge and understanding, and we'd like to see if we can figure out how to contribute to creating knowledge in the global south about China. Fascinating. And just really understanding that interconnectedness and the importance of multilateralism for China moving forward, um, that it doesn't completely operate in its own vacuum or its own sphere. But within China itself, the Ford Foundation as an NGO, of course, has been dragged into the spotlight for the past five years, NGOs in general, not just the Ford Foundation, with a series of laws around NGOs and the way that they can operate and what can be an NGO. And as the Ford Foundation, how do you toe the line with government while still being effective? Or generally, how do you think NGOs can toe the line with government while still being effective? Yes, you you can imagine that that's on all of our minds. The Ford Foundation was able to register under this overseas NGO management law relatively relatively smoothly. Um, The days before we were registered didn't feel so smooth to me, but in retrospect, it it went pretty smoothly. Uh, And our experience has been pretty good. Um, There's a lot more reporting and there's a lot more engagement with not only the government, but also with the the police, um, who are now legally able to come and talk to us anytime they want. Uh, And so there's a lot more reporting and a lot more engagement, and that's very um, different. But in terms of, and we now have to have all of our grants and activities approved um, before we can do them, which is we never did before. But all of those activities that we've wanted to do have been approved. So so that's the good news. I, I invested a lot of time, and I still do, in sort of building trusting relationships with the key agencies that are responsible for the Ford Foundation right now. Um, and we also invested over the last five years, well before the law came, in really trying to own our own story in a public kind of way. So the narrative about Ford in China is various, right? There's different narratives about Ford, but none of those narratives were actually articulated by us. They were articulated by other people. So we've made a really concerted effort to try to create our own story about ourselves and to be really intentional about telling that story in public ways to just begin to try to claim that back as us telling our own story and not having other people tell that story. I think that it's also been important to, as much as possible, to be as open and honest as I can be with the people that I'm talking to about what Ford is and what what it is we're trying to do. And we really are seeking to be a constructive partner in China, and we always have been. So that's not a hard story to tell. But then it's also important to, I think, 
something that I think about a lot is how to make sure that I'm not slowly self-censoring or something by almost inadvertently, right? So really trying to hold myself and the program officers to really make sure that we are not diminishing what we want to do when it comes to working with China because it's harder, right? Just because it's harder and because you have to report things that by itself could make you just say, oh, I'm going to take the easy path and I'm just going to try to do things that I know are are going to be acceptable as opposed to saying, you know what, we really believe in supporting this NGO that supports women who've been victims of domestic violence. And we think that's important. So we're going to do it and have to have many conversations about why we think that's important. And then finally, we're able to make the grant. So you just have to really keep trying to remind yourself about what's the core mission and what are the values of the Ford Foundation, and then do our best to live up to those on a daily basis. Yeah, and really hold yourself accountable. And I I just think that's really interesting about the self-censorship, that working within the constraints of a society with censorship, is it almost um, subliminal? And how do you be conscious and intentional about the the core mission of the foundation? It's definitely, that's totally true here in China. But, you know, I sometimes wonder about even the United States, right? There's things you can say and things you can't. There, there's, there's everywhere you go, there's some broader political environment, social environment, some way in which you might, as a person, try to think about how am I going to say this thing that I want to say in this context, right? And I don't, you know, China has is certainly a particular kind of context and the United States is a different one. But I do think that we're not immune in our own society from narratives that start to shape inadvertently how we think about things, right? And so I think we all have to really try to not let the dominant narrative stop us from reminding ourselves what it is we're we're standing for. I just wanted to say that I don't think it's only in China where this happens, although it is kind of a, an acute situation here. I, I think that's a really fair clarification to make. I agree. I, I definitely agree. One other thing I, I've been curious about is I know the foundation has an endowment, but what is fundraising like for a large foundation? And is there anything unique um, about fundraising? Do you also fundraise from Chinese sources especially the growth in GDP, the growth in individual income, the amount of, of billionaires in China. What, what is fundraising like for um, a foundation, an NGO in China? So the Ford Foundation is really, really fortunate because we have our endowment and we don't raise any money. So Henry Ford's grandson, Edsel Ford, put $25,000 and a whole bunch of Ford Motor Company stock into a foundation in 1936, and we have never raised another penny since that day. So that is a gigantic luxury and a privilege to work for an organization where really what I get to do is think about how to give away resources to enable other people to do things 
and I don't have to think about fundraising. So that is a huge privilege. Inside China, however, so there's many organizations that that need to fundraise, and overseas NGOs, non-Chinese entities inside China under this NGO law are prohibited from fundraising from Chinese society. So they can fundraise from other places, but they can't fundraise from Chinese society. And I think that was a really big disappointment to some because of what you just mentioned, 800 plus billionaires, huge amount of corporate wealth, personal wealth. It just seems like that would be a pretty great resource for a lot of really important international NGOs, but they can't uh, fundraise here because of that particular law. But the other interesting thing is, of course, there's all the Chinese NGOs, and some people say there's 6 million Chinese NGOs. I don't think we really know the number, but between 6 and 7 million is the number that's kicked around. And and when Chinese philanthropy really started to grow and Chinese foundations started to emerge, there was a lot of expectation and hope among all of us that Chinese foundations would begin to fund Chinese NGOs to solve Chinese social problems. And wouldn't that be brilliant, right? Chinese money, Chinese NGOs, Chinese social problems. That seems like where this should head. But unfortunately, a lot of Chinese foundations are what we would call operating foundations, which means that they use their own money and identify the projects that they want to do, and they do them directly. They don't make grants to other organizations, other NGOs to do the projects. They do them directly with their own staff and their own money. And then additionally, the others, another kind of foundation, which is called a foundation, but actually itself has to raise money and then either gives it away or utilizes it itself. So they're really actually competing with NGOs because they're raising money the same way an NGO would be raising money, but they're called a foundation. Uh, and so that's a little bit confusing, but that mean, all this means is that there's not, there's probably, we think, maybe 30 grant-making foundations in China, foundations that actually have a strategic decision that they're going to give their money to NGOs to carry out work. Uh, so it's not very many. Certainly, there's supposedly 6,000 foundations in China, only maybe 40 are grant making. That's not a very big percent. And so that dream that Chinese philanthropy was going to really become a big funder of Chinese NGOs hasn't come true yet. That doesn't say it won't, but it didn't manifest itself as quickly as I think a lot of people were expecting or hoping would be the case. And do you consult with or work with any of those 30 to 40 grant-making institutions, foundations? We do. I mean, the Ford Foundation in certain, you know, is understood to be a a well-run, well-governed foundation. And so a lot of Chinese foundations that aspire to be grant-making foundations are interested in how we operate, how we work, what are our governance rules, how do we run our board, things like that. So that's something that we're very happy and eager to share with any foundation that's interested. Lots of philanthropists now travel to the U.S. and want to visit different foundations. So they visit Gates and Rockefeller and they visit the Ford Foundation, all as a way of trying to learn best practice and understand how 
it is that you really think about these resources and how do you think strategically about deploying them. So yes, we definitely want to use our you know, our experience, 80 plus years of experience as a foundation to share that with the organizations that would are interested. Speaking of consultative advice, I, I have one last question for you, and it's more personal. What do you think is one piece of advice that someone has given you that you've found yourself recently giving to someone else? One of my jobs that we didn't talk about between Kamsky and Ford, I was the chief representative for the Pearson Group here in China for about five or so years. And that's a big British education company. At the time, they also owned the Financial Times. They owned Penguin Books and a huge education business, both publishing and all kinds of things. And I reported to the global CEO, a woman named Marjorie Scardino. You know, this is a big company. And I reported directly to her, which was kind of funny, but anyway, that's just how they structured it. Um, And so she would have to do my performance reviews, which is pretty funny. But anyway, so she would come to China and she would do them. And at one point she said, you know, Elizabeth, you just hold the pencil too tight and you need to loosen up and just not hold the pencil so tightly. And I just thought that that was like a really brilliant insight into me. It just basically means that I try to control the situation more than needed to be. And I just needed to kind of relax into my role, into my job or whatever. But this image of just gripping the pencil too tightly is a very, I think, evocative image. And so every once in a while, I tell myself, you're holding the pencil too tight. And then occasionally, I have also shared this with other people who I think are, as I the image that really has stuck with me, I mean, it was a very elegant and kind way to make a pretty powerful point about how what I could do to be better in my job and in my role. So that that's something that I um, have carried with me lightly. Elizabeth, this has really been such a pleasure. Um, and thank you for being so generous with your time. You have worked with and within many important institutions in China and your experience and knowledge, I think is so useful, not only to me, but hopefully to all the listeners that are tuning in. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I've really enjoyed it too. Great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in this week. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings can be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista and this is Ta for Ta.